The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Let's open uh, in the scriptures now to Luke chapter 2 as we continue in our series through the gospel of Luke. Now in our seventh week in the series, the gospel according to Luke. As I told you, Luke chapter 2, the, uh, the famous birth narrative of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Matthew also has an extended a birth narrative, but Luke is uh, oftentimes uh, the, the most immediately thought of one. And if you're thinking, well, it's too soon for all of this, I would remind you that Menards has had Christmas trees on display for weeks, weeks now already. So it's uh, prepping you to be in the Christmas spirit now, uh, even before Halloween and Thanksgiving. Uh, I actually think it's a wonderful opportunity for us to go to Luke chapter 2, uh, this famous birth narrative, but not in the context of Christmas because it will really give us the opportunity to see this well-known passage maybe with some fresh eyes and uh, from a fresh perspective, uh, not with the expectation of immediate application to Christmas time, but with an appreciation and understanding of what God is doing in history as Jesus Christ is born into the world. So as you're turning back to Luke 2, uh, let's remember that Luke began his gospel account with a word of dedication. And you don't have to flip very far back to Luke chapter 1 at the very beginning, that we assume that Luke is dedicating this gospel narrative to a relatively new Christian believer named Theophilus. And in that dedication to Theophilus in Luke chapter 1, he says, Theophilus, what I'm writing to you is a record of the things that have been accomplished among us. That's Luke 1.1. It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. He's essentially saying, Theophilus, what a time to be alive that you and I have lived in as these things have been accomplished among us. Ancient prophecies fulfilled in our lifetime and we have seen it. We have seen even the greatest empire on earth is just another piece of God's sovereign purposes being worked out as the Father sends His Son into the world. And we know this. We know this, and yet we need to, again, consider what, what these truths mean for us as Christian believers living 2,000 years after Luke has recorded these words under divine inspiration, so that the same truth that he was compelling Theophilus to trust in would be that which we would trust in in our time as well. So we want to see how all this relates to our lives. So let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the Scriptures as we hear it together in faith. Let's pray. Well, great God, we, we come to You now as we turn in Your Word to a much-beloved passage, and our minds immediately go to the memory of hearing these words in the midst of a candlelit sanctuary and the glories of a Christmas Eve or Christmas morning. And yet, Lord, uh, this truth is for all of life, not just one particular season. So we pray that you would enable us by your Holy Spirit to read, mark, learn, and inwardly receive this spiritual nourishment for the good of our souls. So Lord, help us as we sit under this word to receive it and to trust in you, even as we trust in our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Hear now the word of God, Luke 2 and the first seven verses. This is the word of God. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. 
and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. So may He write truth in our hearts today. Do keep your Bible open here in Luke 2. As uh, I want us to see four things here in this text, this familiar text. Something of a, a journalistic integrity, a question of when, a question of where, a question of how, and a question of why. So we want to see when, the timing of the birth of Christ, where, the place of the birth of Christ, how, the manner of the birth of Christ, and why, the irony of the birth of Christ. These four things here in the text as we see how uh, this passage is full, not just of a, a beautiful recounting of how Jesus enters the world, but also our engagement to realize what this truth means for how God works in the world and how He intends to work in His people's lives, even as He was at work in Mary and Joseph's life uh, to bring the Lord Jesus into the world. So, fresh perspectives, I hope, on a familiar passage. So first, let's ask the question of when as we consider the timing of the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, in the introduction... Uh, to Luke's gospel account, there are clues that give us an understanding, and there are other places in the New Testament that tell us that Luke is a highly educated person, likely a physician, but someone who was deeply concerned with recording accurate information with great historical detail. Luke is also a historian and locates the details of the birth of Christ in this real historical precision with real confidence so that you and I who read this history, whether we were Theophilus in the first century or who we are right now 2,000 years later, can receive this information with accurate accounting of historical details to have confidence that what Luke is saying is true, that this happened in the way that he described it exactly in the particular time. So we can still know with confidence this information. But to help us, because we're again 2,000 years later, if you and I had been faithful Jews living at this time in the first century, at the time of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we had been thinking about our nation and thinking about our people and thinking about Israel as a national entity and the Jews as a corporate people, we would have to acknowledge that the first century was not a high point in our history. The first century was not a burgeoning time to be a faithful Jew because it was a time of great persecution and repression of the Jewish people. Because at this time when Luke is writing, it has been a thousand years since Israel was the greatest kingdom in the Mediterranean world, uh, in that, that part of the world. At that time, a thousand years ago, David was reigning on the throne and his son Solomon would soon follow him. And the Davidic kingdom enjoyed peace 
on all sides of their enemies, and they even had emissaries coming from around the world to seek the wisdom of Israel's king, and the the entire world was paying attention to the strength that was Israel and the monarchy of Israel. But a thousand years later, it's the complete opposite. Israel is not found in a position of strength, it's found in a position of weakness. Not only has Israel suffered the division of their northern and southern kingdoms, and not only have the Assyrian people taken over the northern kingdom, and an exile happened in the southern kingdom, there is actually officially no kingdom of Israel at all, because at this time in the first century, Israel is a petty client state of the pagan Roman Empire and their oppressions. So the state of the people of God at the time that Luke is writing here is a time of great oppression and persecution. If you and I were faithful Jews living in the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, the land of Palestine, at the time of the birth of the Lord Jesus, we would be thinking, uh, Lord, what have you done to your people? That you have now delivered us into the hands of our enemies. These people don't even believe in you. They're pagans, they're polytheists, they're immoral. They don't even believe in the one true God. And these are the people that are ruling and reigning over us. If you were a faithful Jew at this time, you would be hopelessly frustrated with the state of the world. And it's fascinating to me that Luke almost delights to go into detail about these historical realities. And all those early Christians would hear this gospel happening in this way and understand that this is the context, this is the circumstance in which God is going to deliver the Messiah into the world. In a moment of almost unmatched difficulty and suffering, God is going to display His sovereign power in the birth of the Messiah. He has the Roman emperor the most powerful person in the world, and his regional representative, Quirinius, the governor of Syria, God, the sovereign, eternal, almighty God, has the Roman Empire accomplish His will for Him. Now, again, if we were Jews, we might feel like we were in the hands of this awesome power of the dreaded Roman Empire and its incredibly efficient administration and even Caesar Augustus, who is in fact... Uh, the grand-nephew of Julius Caesar. But if Israel felt like they were simply in the hands of the Roman Empire, it's actually the opposite, and that's what Luke is saying. That even Caesar, even Caesar Augustus, is merely one element in the hand of a sovereign God to accomplish His purposes to reveal the Messiah. And what this means as we consider the timing of the birth of Christ is that the the times of the people of God are in God's hands. That He is sovereign and He is able to use even the most powerful empire on the earth to accomplish His purposes. And this is the opposite of how people would have thought. They would have said, Caesar is Lord. But God is using even Caesar as a tool in His hand to accomplish the perfect timing of the birth of Christ because God is the one who rules over all, not Caesar. Now let me ask you, is that a relevant word for the world today in terms of world leaders and all the rest? Friends, let me humbly suggest to you that we need to remember right now, uh, all things are in God's hands. 
no matter the world leader, no matter how much authority they think they might have, no matter the amount of approval or disapproval they may have, all things are in God's hands. And the most powerful men and women on earth are but pawns in the hands of a sovereign God. So if you are one given over to fear at the state of the world, Luke is reminding you that Caesar is in God's hand. And that means there is no world leader yet today who is not likewise merely in God's hand. So Christian believer, do not fear because God is the one who reigns. That's the word about the timing, but then also notice how Luke speaks of the details, the where of the place of the birth of Christ. Luke goes on to describe how Joseph and Mary traveled to Bethlehem. You see that detail in verse 4 and 5 that Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, now we know and sing about Bethlehem, right? O little town of Bethlehem. And we are perhaps aware that God promised in the Old Testament that Bethlehem would be the place of the birth of the Messiah because it was David's city. We know that Bethlehem is special. But again, notice the details of how all of this unfolds that it happens to be that Mary and Joseph would have to go to that place which God has determined from all eternity would be the place of the birth of Christ. Again, the Roman Empire authorizes a census in every region for the purposes likely of taxation. And this is easier to enforce in native lands to the empire. But in occupied territories, it's hard to know who your citizens are. So it's Quirinius' idea... And I acknowledge that in this whole text, Cornelius is the one thing that's very hard to pronounce. But Cornelius is this Jewish administrator of all of Syria and governor for the Roman Empire. He's a lower administrator, but a native Jew himself. So it's his idea to say to Caesar, if we ask these Jews to go back, and when we say ask, we really mean tell, we're going to tell these Jews to go back to their native homelands. It'll be easier to know how many citizens there are so we can know how much purse we're going to gather when we levy a heavy tax against him. So this is the plan. So the Roman Empire has authorized this census and with it comes a, let's be clear, a forced relocation of Jewish citizenry. This external and really oppressive exertion of political authority to relocate you and this is how Mary and Joseph find their way to Bethlehem. Because in one sense, they have to go because of the force of their oppression. But they are going ultimately because God the Sovereign One has ordained Bethlehem to be the place of the birth of Christ. So we should step back from this again and ask this question by way of evaluation that many people look at their lives and they say things like, you know what, I'm not where I want to be in my life. Or I'm not happy with where I'm at. Or I wish I was there. Or I wish I wasn't here, I was there. Or I wish in my past I wasn't in this place or in that place. Many people want to be somewhere else other than where they are. And there we know that there is a difference between a want and a need. We could say that Joseph and Mary probably didn't want to be in Bethlehem. But they needed to be there according to God's sovereign purpose. It reminds us that God has no problem getting Joseph and Mary from where they were to where they needed to be. In one view, because their national oppressor determined it to be so, but in a greater sense, because it is God's sovereign purpose that the Messiah be born in Bethlehem. 
That is to say, God has you where He intends to have you. If you stop and consider your life and the seasons of your life, you are not where you are by accident or happenstance, but according to God's sovereign purpose. And He is even able to execute the accomplishment of that sovereign purposes using the mechanisms of what is on the face destructive and evil and oppressive for the accomplishment of His great purpose. That if God is able to use a Roman emperor to do it, that's fine. He can do that. God can get you where you need to be because He gets Joseph and Mary where they need to be. He can use the most powerful empire on earth to accomplish it if He needs be, and He did. God is sovereign in all of our ways and in all of our times and in all of our places and all the circumstances of our lives are in His hands, including Joseph and Mary, for which we can be thankful and from which we can conclude that you can trust Him for the place that He has placed you. So a word about timing and a word about place and now a word about the manner of Christ's birth. Now again, these details... Uh, We're quite familiar with it there at verse 6. We find Luke reporting that while they were there, the time gave for her to give birth. Verse 7 says she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now as you read this passage, you should really begin to be startled by the incredible humility of all of this. That we know that the birth of this child is Jesus But the only actual information so far that Mary would have known is what the angel Gabriel told her in the previous chapter. But we know that this child is someone who is coming on something of a rescue mission to redeem the world that has turned away from God. To redeem the world that has fallen into sin and the corruption that comes from it. And this child is coming to rescue the people of God from their sins. And you would think that God would prepare a place for the reception of that child to be adorned in majesty and filled with the trumpet blast and the banner waving of all the worthiness of that child. But it's not like that at all. And we appreciate that. That it is not in a palace of gold and silver, but a feeding trough for unclean animals. Not, stripped, not clothed in silk and beautiful baby garments, but wrapped in clothes that were probably taken and stripped off another animal and wrapped around him to keep him warm in a manner of a peasant. This child is just a peasant, according to the reporting of Luke 2 here. And what we see here is this incredible picture of the humility of the Son of God in humbling Himself for our sake. And in this picture you have one of the most beautiful depictions of the truth of the Gospel that there is. That the good news of God's salvation is not that God will require you to bring yourself to Him, but rather that He will in mercy condescend to come to you. There's every other worldview, philosophy, and religion that says what you need to do to make yourself acceptable to God is do X, Y, and Z, clean up your life, do this, do this, then God will accept you. But the glory of the gospel is that God comes to you. And He comes to you in humility, and He comes to you in mercy, and He comes to you clothed in lowliness, but overflowing with love. 
Whatever it takes, He's going to do. Whatever it costs, He's going to pay. Wherever He has to go, He will go. And whatever He has to bear, He bears for the sake of this rescue mission. And we think about this, the incredible humility of Jesus as He comes to us, the manner of His birth, and it sets us up in thinking about Jesus in the appropriate way. That from the very moment of His birth, Jesus is beginning to personally experience what we call the humiliation of living life in this fallen world. He's going to experience the humiliation that we experience because of our sin, but which He does not experience because of His sin, but because He is sharing in the experience of our humanity. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, takes on flesh in order to live the life that we are required to live but fail to live and experience in the weight of this fallen world and all of the humiliation that comes from it. He accepts this experience of humiliation because He is living in our place. That means that every calamity that His people experience in their life because of sin, Jesus is going to experience it. Every disappointment that you face in your life living in this fallen world, Jesus will experience that disappointment. And every rejection that His people experience, Jesus will likewise be rejected because He accepts the estate of humiliation in order to raise us up from that humiliation to exaltation. And you know that that is true because the life that begins in a peasant's birth is going to, in one sense, in an earthly sense, conclude with a criminal's death. And from birth to death, Jesus experiences the pain, suffering, sorrow, and the weight of humiliation in this fallen world in order to raise us up from humiliation to exaltation. He is doing this to display the greatness of God's love to embrace the very people who have rejected Him. And as we think about this, again, by way of application, if Jesus enters the world in humility and lives His life in accord with humility and even dies in humility, then that means that as love embraces us, it also calls us to share in that humility. So when Jesus calls on you to be humble, which He does, when Jesus calls on you to be gracious and kind and humble and loving... Oftentimes, we think we're hitting the mark just because we merely tolerate the people that give us grief. We think that just because we don't lash out at our enemies, we're somehow hitting the mark. When Jesus calls us to be humble and He calls us to be forgiving, but God calls us to love in humility in the image of the Savior. And you say, well, what about the people who are hard to love? And Jesus, of course, knows that that's the very point. That everyone in their innate sense as natural sinners is hard to love. So what that means is that when He calls us to love and forgive and display humility, and we say, how in the world could you ever expect me to do that? Jesus says, look at me and watch me do it. And then trust me for the strength to obey. This key thought here that Jesus never calls you to an obedience that He has not first perfectly offered so that there is grace for our imperfect obedience because of Him. This is the manner of Christ's birth and the full meaning 
for our Christian life. So the timing, the place, the manner, but then finally this irony. There's a, there's a compounding irony that's happening here in Luke chapter 2. Not just the timing and place and manner, but also this great irony. If you look back in Luke chapter 1 a few weeks ago, we would have read in Luke 1.28 that Mary was greeted by Gabriel with this word in Luke 1.28. Greetings, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. With you. If we had never read the story before, we would have been surprised to find a few sentences later that after the words of the angel, greeting to you, O highly favored one, the Lord is with you, that same woman, the highly favored one, has a door shut in her face. There's no room for you. And, and we would think these things aren't supposed to go together. How is it that the highly favored one of God receives no welcome? Sorry, we don't have any room for you. There's a cattle stall out back. We would have guessed that when the angel said, He shall be great. That's what Gabriel told Mary nine months ago. He shall be great. And He shall be called the Son of the Most High God. And then we would go forward nine months later and find the Son of the Most High God in a feeding trough and say these things don't fit together. These things seem to contradict these things are ironically contradictory even. They don't go together. And these circumstances seem to contradict even the power and comfort of God's Word of blessing and promise when He says, Mary, you are blessed and I am with you. The Lord says, I'll never leave you and forsake you, but there's no room for you. Your son will be called the Most High, but you'll have to borrow a cloth to cover his naked body when he's born. Why, why is seeing this this seeming contradiction is so important because this truth needs to anchor you that sometimes your circumstances will not match the reality of the promise of God's Word. And at that moment, you'll have to decide whether or not God's Word is true. You see, one of the things that we do as Christians is when we fail to live according to promise, we're governed by circumstance. And when things go bad, we think, God's against me. Or when things are going well, we think, well, now He's happy with me. And the barometer of our spirituality seems to rise and fall according to our circumstances. And we are an ungoverned, untethered, unanchored people when we are circumstantially driven rather than grounded in the authority of God's promises. So, for example... When God promises to never leave or forsake you, and when He promises that all things must work together for good, how do you know that that's still true when the doctor says your cancer's back? And how do you know it's still true when your child or grandchild is wayward? Or how do you know that it's still true when the things that you have hoped and prayed for never seem to come to pass, or the grandchild that you dreamed of holding never takes his first breath? How do you know that God's Word is still true in these circumstances? These circumstances tempt us into thinking that the Lord is not with us, that He has turned His face from us. But the details of Luke chapter 2 remind us that faith calls us to lay hold of the promises even when we scan the horizon and seem to come to the conclusion that He has turned His face from us. There is no way that God could still have a plan in the midst of this because if God was going to bring His Savior into the world, surely it wouldn't look like this. 
but it does in order to solidify your confidence that you should not be governed by circumstances, but by God's word of promise. And so we can remember that the greatest majesty that the world has ever known came into the world in this way when all of the outside circumstances seem to contradict the promise. This is the foundation of our gospel hope. And notice, by way of conclusion, Luke says almost nothing about the kid. Do you appreciate that? There's almost nothing about the baby. Because he's getting ready to say, this child is not just any child. Fix your eyes upon him and watch and see just who this child is who comes into this lowly condition who will raise you from your sin and humiliation into the glory and grace of God's presence. Pay attention to this one, Luke is saying. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we praise you that you give it to us by sovereign inspiration by your Holy Spirit. And we pray now that that same Holy Spirit would rest upon us, giving us faith, confidence, and hope to trust you, regardless of where we are, regardless of what our circumstances are, to believe that you work out all things according to your sovereign purposes. Bless us as we trust in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.